This is Mike Roth. This is Cincinnati Business Talk Radio. And today we're going to have Paul Smith talk about how to use stories in business. Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-3753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with Paul Smith. Say hi, Paul. Well, hello. Thanks for having me on the show, Mike. Let me tell uh, everyone about, about you, Paul. Paul is, a, is an author. You have three books out now, and the general theme is stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I asked you to come on the show because uh, here at Sandler, stories are a really big part of selling because stories go to everyone's child ego state. Mm, yeah, well put. Direct input. Okay, uh, Paul spent uh, two years as a consultant uh, at Accenture. That was in the IT world? No, that was back when it was Arthur Anderson and Company for a long Anderson. time ago. Yeah, well, Nobody knows that name anymore, so I say Accenture so they know what, what I'm talking about. Right, right. Uh, I guess I'm old enough to know yeah. the Arthur Anderson yeah. name. Uh, I spent 20 years at uh, Procter & Gamble as a director of consumer and communications research. Uh, Paul has been a uh, popular keynote speaker and trainer in leadership and communications. He's been featured in the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, in their magazine. Uh, The the online uh, newspaper, Wall Street Journal. Okay. Uh, They have a a paper magazine that they distribute on Saturdays now. Oh, yeah? Okay. Good for them. Uh, Is that Time Online? Mm -hmm. Forbes? Mm Mm-hmm and uh, Success Magazine, among others. Uh, Paul is a graduate of the Wharton School, uh, University of Pennsylvania. Interesting. Uh, I get a lot of uh, clients, prospective clients, that that tell me, uh, Mike, I want to go to business school. I'm going to get an MBA from uh, Xavier or Thomas More. Mm -hmm. And my response is always the same. Unless you're going to go to someplace really good with a name like Wharton, that's going to really take your career high. Uh, Sailor training is a better investment than, <laughs> than to save your MBA. Yeah. Someone's going to come back. And well, maybe the best back. answer is to get both. I don't know. No, the best answer is to, and, and I've had a lot of people go to Wharton or one of the mm-hmm. other Northwestern mm-hmm. in Chicago, get a really high power uh, MBA, and that's worth something. Uh, did you get that MBA when you were with P&G? No, before I joined the company. In between, it was a couple of years in between Anderson and joining P&G. Okay, so that made you more hireable. It, it did. You know that that's that's why P&G hired me. They went in recruiting uh, at Penn at Wharton, and mm-hmm. uh, if I hadn't hadn't done that, I, I wouldn't have ended up at P&G. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, and you, you've been an author for how many years now? Uh, since 2012, so it's my fourth year. In fact, fourth. so the third book's not quite out yet. It comes out in August, oh. uh, which should be about now. Yeah. Right? So um, maybe the end of the month, beginning of next month. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the books that you've written lead with a story, a guide to crafting business narratives uh, that captivate, convince, and inspire. Uh, that's quite a long title. Yeah, you know, one of the things you learn as an author is that um, you have about zero input into the title of your books. <laughs> you know, I, I get to control what's between the covers mm-hmm. and the, the publisher gets to decide what the title and subtitle is. And um, uh, you just kind of have to trust their, their judgment unless you're self-published, of course, then you get to make all those decisions. Right. Right. So, so that, that book uh, lead with a story is in its eighth printing in six languages. 
Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's the thing that's led to me uh, leaving P&G and making a career out of being a, a speaker and a trainer and a, a storytelling coach uh, is, is the success of that first book. How many copies would, would eight printings be, roughly? Uh, it's probably it's probably sold forty five or fifty thousand by now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which you know to me honestly sounds underwhelming. You think, oh, if a book does well, it must sell millions of copies, and and it turns out that's not the case. The uh, um, I, I've heard that ninety percent of nonfiction books in the U.S. will sell less than ten thousand copies ever in their entire five ten year life cycle. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think mine sold that in the first six months. So um, it, it did much better than I expected. Yeah, about. 15 years ago, no, it was probably 20 years ago when Sandler's first book came out, You Can't Teach Your Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar. Mm-hmm. Uh, first year in the bookstores, it didn't do 10,000, uh, but it's done about 10,000 a year. It's, yeah. it's now in the second edition. Yeah. Uh, Very good. Yeah. Originally, it was 1,200 pages when you wrote it, mm-hmm. and they issued the first book with 250, 270 pages in it. And it just got bumped up another 60 pages. <laughs> That's a great book. Uh, and your book is available in bookstores? Yeah, uh, probably not. Uh, the, the new book is, uh, mm-hmm. will be uh, selling the story. Yeah. Um, the, the first two books are probably out of cycle in most bookstores now. You have to get them online. They, they tend to cycle out pretty quickly. Yeah, out of Amazon. Uh, your most recent book is called Parenting with a Story. Is that the one before the, the one so that's, that's coming out? Yeah. This month in August. Right. So, so that, that's my second book, Parenting with a Story. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the idea behind there was uh, basically apply the same techniques of using storytelling to help make you a better leader at work mm-hmm. to making you a better parent at home. Mm-hmm. So do you have kids and you've tested this theory? <laughs> it, it is field tested in my house quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a couple of boys. I've got a, a 16-year-old and a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so how many years have you been testing the story concept with children? Yeah. Well, most of my life, and I think I just misspoke. My, my, I have a 16-year-old and an 11-year-old, um, Matthew and Benjamin. And, you know, ever since they're old enough to hear stories, I guess. Uh, and most of us do that. I mean, parents, I think, in, instinctually tell stories to their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, mostly what we do is hand out advice. And what I found is that that doesn't work very well. Uh, and it doesn't work at work very well either, right? You, you just tell people what to do. Uh, kind of like you said about Sandler, it's hard to learn how to do something in a seminar. It's like a parent trying to tell their kid, you tell them what to do and it doesn't work very well. But you, you give them a little bit of life experience through a story of what you did as a kid, maybe, whether it was good or bad, and it tends to work out a lot better. Mm-hmm. In Sandler, we work in, in the mode of long-term positive reinforcement training to train human beings. Uh, and mainly I've trained human beings. We've had a few people from uh, Alpha Centauri. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but mostly humans, you turn Mostly humans, yeah. Okay, good. The ones from Alpha Centauri actually did a one-time work at P&G. I'm sure they did. Uh, they did very well. Okay. Uh, uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, in, in selling, stories are the way to reach the child ego state, uh, as described in transactional analysis. Uh, how did you get the idea to write a book just about stories? Yeah, well, I guess maybe it was maybe I'm a slow learner, but my first 15 or so years at P&G, after that length of time, I finally kind of realized that the, the leaders that I respected the most, that I admired, that I wanted to work for, and that I, I wanted to grow up and be like when I, when I became a more senior leader at the company, they were great storytellers. Uh, and I realized, gosh, they didn't teach me that in business school. They didn't teach me that when I joined the company. So if I wanted to learn how to do that, I needed to figure out how to learn how to do that. And so I... Uh, I read all the other books written on the topic and uh, still didn't know how to do it. So I uh, literally started interviewing CEOs and senior executives at companies all over the world, asking them questions about, um, you know, what kind of stories are you telling? What situations are you in when you're telling them? Um, You know, and and, uh, eventually reverse engineering my way into what is it that makes for a great story? And, And at some point along the way, it became not just my own personal learning journey, but I thought, gosh, if I want to know this that badly, maybe other people will as well. And so it became an idea for a book and not just my own private learning experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that's kind of how I got started. And, and, um, and, and now we're into the, the third generation of that effort, which is selling with a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think uh, most people don't almost like automatically and growing up learn how to tell stories? Well, I, I think we're, I think we do 
listen to stories quite naturally. And I think uh, in general, we, we tend to tell stories uh, quite naturally in our private lives. But when we get to work, for some reason, we've trained ourselves to stop doing that. You know, we, we, we feel like it's somehow less than professional. You know, I'm a professional here. I'm all about the facts. You know, I've got my, my sales pitch here. I've got my data, my facts, my I'm catalog. I'm an exactly. architect. I'm a... Yeah. You know, so we, we extract storytelling and we think that's the kind of thing, well, that's just for bedtime for the kids or that's for kindergartners or something like that. And it's, it's just not. Human beings learn best through storytelling. It's a better influence method for them. And so I think we have this natural tendency, but if we will bring it into the office, we can make a lot more use of it. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have to be retrained on how to, how to think of and tell stories for work because it's a little bit different than telling a story to your kid. And it's a lot different than the kind of storytelling that a, a screenwriter would do in Hollywood, crafting a two hour movie or that a novelist would write. I mean, those are stories also, but at work you need to tell two and three minute stories, right? Not two hour stories. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's quite different and, but there's a way to do it. Well, can you name a, uh, a business leader that everyone would know or almost everyone would know who's a skilled storyteller? Oh, yeah, John Pepper from P&G. So um, if you're a Cincinnati audience, I think most of them know of him, and many of them have probably met him at some point mm-hmm. in his, his career. Um, he was one of those people that inspired me early on, seven, eight, nine years ago, to study the art and craft of storytelling because he just did it so effortlessly. Mm-hmm. I think that's key. It's got to be... Uh, Effortlessly in appearance, mm-hmm. but professional right. in terms of content. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. methodology. Yeah. Um, and that's why it's not easy, but if you study it and, and use the right tools, you can do it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think some advertising agencies are really great at storytelling and others just give lip service to it? Uh, no, I, I, I doubt it. I think uh, ad agencies tend to hire, I mean, their creative departments are certainly filled with great storytellers. Um, and, and that's why that, that's not been an area that I've focused a lot in. And it's for that reason that if you're, if you're talking about creating stories for advertisements, uh, generally companies will hire a professional ad agency that has professional copywriters and, sto- and story, not just copywriters, but storytellers. I think there's a difference between a copywriter there, there, and yes, a storyteller. There, there is. There is. But most of the agencies that I know and have worked with know the difference. And they know when they're writing copy and they know when they're telling a story. But most of the rest of us, you know, the other 99% of us who are not Hollywood directors or um, you know, creative agencies, storytellers, most of the rest of us don't know how to do it very well. And so the, the, these books are written for that 99%, not the 1% that already know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I came as a, uh, probably five or six years ago, I went into a, an advertising agency in Columbus and uh, not being familiar with their company, I asked the CEO, what do you do? He came back really simply and said, we tell stories. Good. That, that, that's my business, telling stories. Yeah. Could be a website, could be in a, a TV commercial, could be in a radio spot, could mm-hmm. be in a, an ad, a print ad, mm-hmm. but we tell stories. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of dumbfounding how simple he made it uh, right there. Uh, you were at P&G for... Nine years? 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. 20 years. So what made you leave P&G after 20 years? It seemed you, you came close to the point where right. they, they'd want to give you a package. Yeah. You? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if I'd stuck out a few more years, I probably I could have been retirement eligible. But it was to do this for a living. I mean, I, I absolutely love I, – I didn't know I would love writing so much. Mm-hmm. I knew I would love teaching. Uh, and that's essentially what I am. And so that's what you guys do, too. You teach some, you know, a skill set. Well, I teach the skill set of storytelling to leaders, executives, salespeople, et cetera. And, um, and I loved doing it the few times I got to do it in my career, and now I get to do it full time. And that's what I spend you know, a significant portion of my time doing. I, I spend part of my time writing books, and I spend the other part of my time meeting with you know, senior executives, sales teams, et cetera, teaching them the art and the craft of storytelling. And I just love it. And, you know, after the first book came out and I started to get a you know, significant number of phone calls from companies to, well, can you come teach us how to do this? Love your book, but we don't have six weeks to read it. Can you come teach us in four hours how to do this? You know, you, you know the, that, that's the, the, the way this business model works. So that's what I do for a living now and absolutely loved it. And once I saw enough of that, uh, it, it became an opportunity for a whole new career. Good. Uh, we're going to uh, take a short break here. 
and uh, we'll be back after these uh, commercial breaks. Hi, this is Mike Roth. Are you sick and tired of not earning what you're worth? Are you frustrated with long sales cycles and angry when you have to negotiate away most of your profit or commission to get the deal? There is a better way. I want to invite you to join us on September 1st for a career-changing event. I'm bringing David Matson to the Kentucky Speedway for a special event, a Sales Leadership Summit. David will share 10 powerful ideas to take your sales organization to the next level. The event is designed to grow your sales by at least 30%. At Sandler Training by Strategic Sales Experts, we're tough, expensive, and not for everyone. For full details, check our website at strategic.sandler.com. Or if you know that you really want to attend or have questions, call me directly on my cell, 513-646-6523. This message, this is, message short is short and to, the point. and to the point. In business, you don't get paid for what you know. You get paid for what you sell. Yet many salespeople leave their skills to chance. They often think, let me think it over. They write proposals that go nowhere. They lower their price to get the order. They wind up chasing prospects through the voicemail maze. It doesn't have to be that way. The best salespeople were not born great. They learned it. I'm Mike Roth of Roth & Associates. We're famous for our expensive, difficult Difficult. sales training. We're not for everyone. We build the best sales prospectors and sales negotiators on the planet. Are you in sales? Are you ready to get deadly serious about your career that feeds your family? Are you ready to make a change? Call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523. Sandler's most experienced trainer in Cincinnati, 646 Six five two three. This is a message for professional salespeople. It's an unusual message. I'm going to tell you that our product is expensive and difficult, effort to use, and it's not for everyone. We provide difficult but effective sales training. It's the kind of training familiar to champion athletes. It builds winners in the world of business. We don't promise quick fixes or color brochures, only hard work that will teach you how to sell effectively even when your price is higher. If you're tired of hearing I want to think it over, if you're finally ready to invest in yourself and your sales career and learn how to close more business faster, call me, Mike Roth, 513-646-6523, and we'll invite you to our next Lunch and Learn Sales Discovery Workshop on February 5th at either 8 a.m. or 1 p.m. 513-646-6523. 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Paul Smith, author of a series of books about stories. Uh, but, uh, Paul, uh, what gave you the idea to take the storytelling idea into the business world? Yeah, so uh, I, I, probably similar to what we just talked about uh, before the break, it was uh, it was realizing that um, the leaders that I admired the most really were great storytellers. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to do that better and, and, uh, and become a more effective leader myself. Mm-hmm. And does the book have a purpose or a goal? Yeah, so, well, the new book, and I guess maybe the better question is, what made me decide to take storytelling from leadership into sales? Um, because that's the most recent effort. And, um, and that was really three, three things. One is it seemed like the next logical progression. You know, the first book was on storytelling for leaders, the second on storytelling for parents, and sales seemed to me to be the next logical step. Uh, but one of the reasons, quite frankly, is that's what my clients were asking for. You know, a significant number of my clients tended to be sales teams uh, that hired me because of the leadership book. And they said, look, we need to tell stories for our, our selling purposes. So that gave me, you know, I should write a book just for salespeople, but uh, the other reason is my publisher asked for it. I mean, it was because they're getting asked that question by their readers and the bookstores owners are saying, you know, if you're going to if you're going to come out with more books on storytelling, you know, we need some for salespeople. So all those three kind of converged into uh, into that next effort. Mm-hmm. Could you tell our listeners what kind of research you did to to get there? Yeah. So probably four different areas of research. One is I, I started off by reading all the other books that have been written on the topic. And, and there have been many of them. Um, but uh, most of the, my, my primary research was I got on the phone with or sat down in person with um, salespeople and procurement professionals at 50 or so different 
companies around the world. Now, they're ones that you'd recognize, like Microsoft and Costco and Xerox and Abercrombie and Fitch and Kroger, you know, here in Cincinnati, Cushman and Wakefield. Um, and I was interviewing both sales salespeople for the obvious reason, but the procurement people I wanted to meet with because, you know, who better, I thought, to tell me which sales stories are effective and which ones are not than the professional buyers that are making the decisions to either buy the product or not. And at first, it was kind of an afterthought for me. Is you know, I'm going to interview mostly salespeople, but I'm going to interview a few purchasing people as well. Mm-hmm. By the end of the research, I, I, I think I've concluded that I think I learned more from the buyers than I did the sellers um, because they listen to literally thousands of sales pitches a year. Mm-hmm. And they know what, what are the good stories and what are the bad stories and what, which salespeople are not telling stories at all. And so that turned out to be a really good decision as part of the, the research. But so anyway, 50 different companies, I, I interviewed some of their key professionals and, and documented eight to 10 different stories from each one of them. And so literally out of the 250 or 300 executives that I've interviewed for, for all three of these books combined, I've probably documented 2,000 different stories. And so that's really what allowed me to kind of dissect what is it that works in a good story and what's not. But, um, you know, I've also got all these training clients of my own that I get to meet with and, and I find out what their struggles are and what, what their sales struggles are, their leadership struggles are, their communication struggles. And so I learn from that process as well. Uh, but the last thing, and, and probably the least important, but uh, is something, is my seven out of my 20 years at P&G were spent on sales teams. So I was on the sales team that called on uh, Costco up in the Seattle mm-hmm. area, you know, for, for the, the all of their stores everywhere. And I was on the Walmart sales team down in Arkansas and Bentonville. And I was I was never the, the salesperson carrying the bag, but I was either the finance manager or the research manager on two of these really quite arguably two of the best sales teams of, of any company anywhere. So did you live in Bentonville for a while? I did. I did. I lived there for four years, you know, and I lived up in Seattle for a couple of years as well. And so you, you can't you can't work in an environment like that and not pick up a few things about mm-hmm. sales as well. So that informed at least my research, if not the things that I learned. So there, there was quite a bit of different things that led to, to, to the research behind the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you uh, give our listeners a, a short example of a good sales story? <laughs> Yeah. And then we'll go back and dissect it. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. So um, because a lot of people you know, ask me, well, what is a sales story? And my definition of a sales story is probably different than a lot of other people. So um, I'll give you a, a personal example. Uh, my wife and I were down at Coney Island uh, last May at the art fair. So I don't know if you've ever been to, to this, mm-hmm. but once a year they have this big juried art fair. Yeah, great art fair. Yeah, fabulous. And they have people from all over the country. It's not just like local artists. Mm-hmm. Now, my wife's the, the artist in our family, and the truth is I was kind of there just to carry the bag, right? Um, uh, but I was being the patient husband and walking around, and she's going booth to booth and talking to all the artists about their techniques and their inspiration and their mediums and all that kind of stuff. Well, she's, got a, a mis- she's on a mission to get a picture for our kid's bathroom, and she gets to this one booth of this one underwater photographer, a guy named Chris Goog, and he he's, takes these just breathtaking pictures of sea anemones and whales and sharks and all kinds of you know beautiful underwater stuff. She's looking through all of his stuff, and she gets her eye locked on this one picture that to me looked about as out of place as a pig in the ocean. Okay, Mike, it was a picture of a pig in the ocean, <laughs> literally, right? Mm, a little unusual. Yeah, and I, you know, I'll put, flying pigs here. Exactly, <laughs> but swimming ones, I like. I just didn't get it. You know, yeah. so I, the guy comes over eventually, and I ask him, I said, "Look, what's what's up with the pig in the ocean?" And and that's where the magic started. The guy said, "Oh, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, he said uh, that picture was taken in the in the Caribbean Ocean off of a Bahamian island, an uninhabited Bahamian island called Big Major Cay." And he said, apparently what happened is a few years earlier, this local entrepreneur decided to raise uh, pigs for bacon, and he needed a place to raise the pigs. And there was this uninhabited island that you know, he could just keep them there for free. So he threw them all out there. And he said, but if you look in the picture really close, you can see that up on the shore, there's nothing but cactus. right? And yeah. And he said, well, guess what? Pigs don't like cactus. So they were starving to death. Well, they got lucky that a local restaurant owner on a neighboring island every night started bringing over his kitchen refuse and dumping it offshore, a couple of dozen yards offshore. Well, eventually these pigs literally learned to swim to get out to the food or they were going to starve to death. Well, here it is 15 years or so later, and and every generation of pigs has learned to swim to get to this food. And now all the pigs on the island can swim. In fact, now they call it Pig Island. Mm -hmm. So I, of course, immediately pull out my credit card, slap it down on the table and say, we'll take it. Right now, you know, two minutes earlier, that picture was worth nothing to me. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a silly looking picture of a pig in the ocean. You know, my wife loved it. I thought it was ridiculous. But now, two minutes after that, 
I was willing to pay whatever he wanted for it because now I was buying a story. Now I was buying not just that silly picture, but you know, I had a, an animal psychology lesson, a history lesson, a geography lesson, all in one, and a story I could tell other people when they come to my house and look at that picture. I can explain all that. So it, just, it made it so much more valuable to me. You know, and he didn't tell me that story with the intent of giving me a hard sale, mm-hmm. but it worked. You know, now I wonder that he told you the story. Yeah, it wasn't part of his strategy. He was just telling me a story about how he took the picture. In fact, he said it was so easy, I didn't even have to get out of the boat to take this picture because as soon as the pigs see a boat coming, they assume there's food coming. He said, I just leaned out the, the, over the side of the boat, put my camera in the water, and boom, I was done. So that's the kind of story that I'm talking about, a real story about something that really happened. Uh, told in a, in, a, in a casual, conversational manner that improves the value of the product that you're selling. At least that's at least one. So where example. did the picture wind up? In our, in our kids' bathroom, exactly where my wife wanted it, and it's there today. Yeah. <laughs> okay, with a great story like that, it, it might wind up in my family. Room. It could. <laughs> uh, why should salespeople, in your opinion, tell stories? Yeah. So there are a lot of reasons, but you know, let's, uh, you want to diagnose that one first and just see what made that a story because I, I, my guess is for me, the story began, uh, when you went to the art show at Coney Island. Yeah. So my story to you, yeah. So that, yeah. So there's, it's a story within a story, right? I mean, I told you a story about me and my wife, but in it is a story that the, the artist told us, but, but notice how that's different than what a lot of people would call a story. Um, Mm -hmm. in fact, you know, imagine it's nine o'clock on a Monday morning and the sales vice president, you know, walks into the conference room and he, she's got her six or seven sales reps in the room and they've got a big sales call on a new prospect in three days and they're preparing for it. You know, she leans out over the table, claps her hands together and says, all right, people, what's our story? So what do you think she's asking for at that moment? Do you think she's asking for a story like the Pig Island story? Probably not. She's probably asking for what is the logical series of facts and data and arguments that we are, we're going to put together, probably in a PowerPoint presentation, in a series of bullet points, such that by the end of the meeting, we have a sales order. That's probably what she really means by what's our story. And that's okay. That's fine. For the, I mean, that you need sales pitches, but that's a sales pitch. Well, that's not a story, right? Or would you call that something different? Well, I've seen too many deaths by PowerPoint. Right. Uh, so... If you could craft a story that was illustrative with pictures, because people are, that's mm-hmm. a 55% chance or more that the, the person you're talking to takes in information through his eyes mm-hmm. or her eyes, uh, you're stacking the deck in your favor. True. The best best presentations I've ever seen are more pictures than words. Yeah. And True. the worst ones are almost always full of words. Right. Yeah. So, but we're not talking about. A presentation. I, I, I'm not talking about a presentation. I'm talking about storytelling. So my, my point is the Pig Island story I just told you story is a story. Tell, sells the picture, the process, the service, whatever it is. So, or, or it could be a story about you. It's part of your rapport building. And we, we can talk next about where in the, where in the sales process should, should salespeople be telling stories. One of those is in the actual sales pitch itself. Some of it's in the rapport building. Some of it's in service after the sale. Some of it's to you know, negotiate price. But the, the, the point here is that the story I just told you is a real story. You know, a 10-year-old kid would recognize that as a story. Mm-hmm. But if I were to give you a sales presentation – even if it had pictures in it, but if it was really just a series of facts and arguments of here's here are the three reasons, Mike, why you need to buy my product, and these could be three phenomenally compelling reasons, and you could not you, you could be desperate to sign up and you could buy my product on the spot, and it could be a phenomenally successful sales pitch. That doesn't make it a story. That means it a, that makes it a phenomenally successful sales pitch. But giving people reasons and facts and data isn't telling a story. I mean, the, the way I use the word story, my point is connected. So and let's, and let's take that uh, in our next segment of how to craft the pieces uh, so we can see the difference, differential between stories and sales pitches yeah. and why you feel stories are superior to pitches. Yeah. Good. Let's listen to uh, Santa Rule number 34.
Hello, I'm Jerry Weinberg, Sandler Training, and I'm here today to talk about Sandler Rule number 34, which says work smart and not hard. So one of the things we need to do when we're involved in, in going after a, a prospect is to learn how to qualify and disqualify early on. Uh, it's been my experience, you know, having done this for many, many years, as we coach our clients, as, as we train them, that they seem to spend, many of them, an incredible amount of time chasing, following up business they're never going to get. And for goodness sakes, if you're going to follow, you know, finish second, why do you even want to bother being in there? We don't get paid on experience. And frequently what happens is uh, we, we have a prospect maybe who's on our top ten list, let's say, and we want so badly to meet them, and we finally get an appointment with Mr. or Ms. Big, and, and uh, we're brought in there, and uh, next thing you know, we're doing a proposal to a totally unqualified situation. And uh, maybe it's a much larger piece of business than we normally would be working with and we wind up in Think It Overland. And next thing you know, we're following up and we're, we're making phone calls and, and we're sending emails and nothing's happening. I'll tell you what is happening is we're not prospecting because we're spending too much time with prospects we're never gonna do business with. In fact, I'd like you to write that question down and kind of track it over the next several days. How much time do I spend following up, chasing business I'm never gonna get and how do I suffer with that? One of the ways that you can work around that is instead of going after a, a large chunk of dollars, start with a smaller piece. We call it a monkey's paw. Get some dollars, maybe for an assessment, maybe for a pilot program. You'll also keep your competition out of the picture. You'll at least feel like you're making some progress and then you can make it work better. So again, Jerry Weinberg, Sandler rule number 34, Work smart, not hard. This is Mike Roth and Paul Smith back again to talk about selling and stories. Uh, Paul, before we get any further, uh, why don't you tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you after the show? Yeah, thank you. So uh, my website's probably the best place to do that, and it's uh, www.leadwithastory.com. So just the title of my first book, and mm -hmm. all my contact information is there, and the services and training that I do and stuff like that. Thank you. Good. Uh, Paul, now we were talking about uh, the, the pig story. Mm -hmm. uh, let's start by dissecting it down to the elements. What are the elements that make a good sales story? Yeah, so so first of all, the elements that make it a story and not something else, another type of narrative, a sales pitch, a presentation, talking points, whatever, is that it's got a, a time and a place. And it happened, you know, in May of 2015 at Coney Island. Mm -hmm. It's got a main character, me and my wife, um, or in the case of the actual Pig Island story, it's the pigs <laughs> and 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 the photographer. There's a goal, you know, the pigs are trying to eat, so they're not starving to death. There's an obstacle. Well, there's nothing on the island except for cactus. And there are events. You know, the pigs did some things. They learned how to swim. The, the entrepreneur, you know, got lucky and somebody, the restaurant owner dumped the food offshore. I mean, so stories have times, places, characters. Those characters have goals. They have obstacles, a villain in their way, and there are events. You know, you compare that to a sales pitch, a typical sales pitch. Okay, so let's see what a typical yeah. sales pitch would say. Yeah. And we're going to convert it into a story. Yeah, well, if, if, if we go the other direction, let's take the Pig Island story and turn it into a sales pitch. You know, so I'm, I'm the photographer and you're Paul Smith. And I'm like, look, Paul, you need this picture for your kid's bathroom because your wife's looking for a, a sea, an ocean-based or marine life picture for the bathroom. This one is in the right price range. It's kind of sunny. It's kind of, kind of beachy. She likes that. It reminds her of her vacation. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a single animal in it, so it's not too busy, other stuff going on. Um, and you're already here, and, and if you look around, you're going to spend the rest of the day looking for other stuff. It's just not going to look as well. You just need to buy this right now. I mean, those are all good reasons why I should buy it. Yeah, the size is right. It's got a beautiful yeah, frame. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. The size is right. Yeah, all that, there could be all kinds of reasons why you should, I, you, Paul Smith, should have bought that picture. Features and benefits selling. Exactly. Exactly. Even if all those arguments are very compelling, 
that doesn't make it a story. That makes it a very compelling sales pitch. Storytelling is something you add to your storytelling. So this, this I'm not trying to teach you know a new method of sales. Like you should abandon all your whatever your current sales you know methodologies are. Abandon your standard training. You know none of that. These are skills to add to whatever your current method of of sales is. Add storytelling to each of the components. You know this is an example of one that's actually during the sales pitch itself. Like I said, as opposed to rapport building, getting to know your buyer, getting their stories out of them. Mm-hmm. You know, other things like that. So that's what differentiates a story from a non-story. Now, what I think makes for a great sales story is that it's got the right structure, that it's highly emotional, and that it's got a surprise in it. Like those are the three major components of what I think differentiates, you know, average so-so sales stories from great ones. Having the right structure, having emotion, and having some kind of a surprise. So if you look at the story, you know, the Pig Island story. Um, you know, it was in a, you could kind of feel that it, it was in the right order of, you know, there was context at the beginning for the pigs. There was a challenge that, you know, they were starving. Um, they, they had this conflict and that they had to learn how to swim to get to the food. It resolved itself nicely at the end that they, you know, there was a happy ending. Um, and there was a, a lesson at the end of it. Now we know why the artist was able to so easily get the picture of the pig by just leaning out of the boat because of all this story that transpired earlier mm-hmm. and the recommended action is well you know now you need to buy my picture <laughs> right which you didn't even have to say because the story sold me so that's the structure but it also had those other two components that i talked about it's got it had emotion right i mean it, it, i mean who who doesn't feel a little bit of emotion for these cute little pigs that were starving to death that now can you know eat and swim in the ocean and if you could see the picture of course like you said pictures are, are very valuable it wasn't a big fat hog it was a cute little baby piglet like uh, Wilbur, you know, in uh, Charlotte's Web. I mean, it, it, it's something you could care about. So is that pig going to be in your book? It, oh, absolutely. That, that, that's the first story in, uh, in Cell with a Story. You know, that's the, you know, I, I, I probably won't use the picture, but the story is in there. But it's also got a surprise, right? So that was mm-hmm. the last criteria, right? Like, you, you know, who would have thought that pigs could swim? Like, just the whole story is surprising. I didn't know pigs could swim. You know, uh, maybe somebody else did, but it was a complete surprise to me. And now I know how and why. Mm-hmm. So it, it, that one kind of had all of those those elements. Mm-hmm. So if you were talking to salespeople, uh, where would you tell them to start? Well, you got to start by learning storytelling. So, uh, so first of all, start by knowing that storytelling is something that you need to learn. And, and many people assume falsely that storytelling is the kind of skill set that you're either born with or you're never going to have, right? It's kind of like being a musician. Mm-hmm. Like some people are born with it, some aren't. And, and I used to think that about, um, uh, about music also. But I bet if I were to go take uh, guitar lessons for six months, I could probably learn to play a few songs, right? Now, I'm never going to fill up Carnegie Hall with people wanting to hear me play the guitar because yeah. I'm not a natural born musician. But I could probably get decent. It's the same with story. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and then you'll discover, oh, I don't know, it'll be someplace between six months and three years mm-hmm. in, whether or not you've got an ear for it. Right. Okay, well, can you hear the pitch? Can you right. hear it in your head without hearing middle C on a piano? Right. But even if I don't have that, in six months, I could at least play Happy Birthday. I mean, I could learn to play a few things, and that's the... I, I think, yeah, I think storytelling is the same way. There are clearly some people that are born with a skill set for that, and clearly some people that are not. But if if you will just study it, it, it is, and that's what I'm saying. But I think it's both. I think it's like music or art. I think some people have a natural inclination for it, and some people don't. But even the people that don't can learn how to do it decently by studying it, not by just saying, well, if I just keep practicing, I'll get better. Well, no, because you haven't trained. So you need to, I mean, read a book on the subject, come to a training class on the subject. I mean, you need to learn it. You need to treat it like any other skill set in your profession, like you know, marketing or sales or whatever. I mean, treat it like a serious skill that you need to go learn and then practice and perfect. And I think if you do that, you can, you can learn and master the art of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And that's why I do what I do, and that's why you do what you do. And, and it fits so well with Sandler. Yeah. Because one of Sandler's early rules is sales is a Broadway play performed by a psychiatrist. Now, that's right. a story in a story. Right, yeah. Um. So if, if we started with a, a salesman who wasn't using stories but mm-hmm. using uh, features and benefits, facts and figures mm-hmm. uh, for his selling in a highly competitive market, uh, how would you tell him to find 
uh, a story to use? Structure, emotion, surprise. Yeah, yeah, good, good question. So um, the first thing would be uh, search their own past. I mean, you probably have had all kinds of things happen to you in the past uh, in your professional career that will make for, for good stories. Uh, but I tell people to you know, ask for them, actively go seek out stories. You know, a lot of times we'll hear a good story or we'll see something that would make a good story and we'll think, oh, well, that was a nice story, and then we'll forget about it. But if it impacted you, it'll impact somebody else. So start by looking in your own past. When, when are the best, story, the best stories I've heard, the best stories I've told, the best stories I've heard other people tell? And you need to start creating your own mental database of stories. And more than just mental, I, I tell people, write them down. I mean, you know, create an, your own file of, here's 150 stories that I could use at some point in my, you know, sales career. Um, uh, ask your clients, your best clients, why did I become, wh why did we become one of your uh, favorite suppliers? Mm -hmm. You know, what was the moment that you knew that we were the best solution for you? And they'll tell you. And then you tell other people that story. You know, that's what you want your prospective clients to know. You want them to become, you want, you want to become their favorite supplier too. We'll find out when you became the favorite supplier of X, Y, and Z and tell that story. So asking for them is the, the knowing that you need to look for them is the main thing. Once you do, once you know that, it becomes easier because you'll, you'll, you'll thirst for them and you'll start to find them everywhere. Does it, is it important for the storyteller to make the story he borrowed or she borrowed his own? Uh, yes, to some extent, I, not to the point that you've stolen the story and claim, you know, this, this happened to me and no, it didn't, this happened to somebody else. I mean, so, you know, one of the whole chapters in the book is basically on the ethics of storytelling. And so, um, you will tell a story differently than somebody else, unless you're reading it from a script, right? Everybody can read a page the same as anybody else, but if you're telling it from memory, it will be different. So it will be yours. Uh, but what you shouldn't do is change significant parts of the facts of the story such that you've now really done a disservice to the integrity of the story and to whoever you got it from. Um, and in fact, that's a common question I get from my clients is, do my stories have to be true? And the, here's the surprising answer. Uh, no, they don't. Uh, you can tell a story that's completely untrue, but only under one condition. And that condition is that your audience knows that you made it up. Okay. Uh, and as long as you tell your audience, okay, look, um, I, I'm totally making this up, but go with me on this because I think it'll help explain the point. You can then say anything you want after that because you've told them that nothing that's about to come out of your mouth is really, really a true story. But it, it's a plausible story that could and probably is happening all the time, and it'll, tell the, it, it'll explain the lesson that I want to explain. But if you don't say words like that, then, yeah, every story you tell should be Mostly true. I mean, there can be, you know, you, you'll get dates wrong. You'll forget, was it five people or six people? There'll be some minor details that storytelling tends to drop and forget and change. And, and those little things don't matter, you know. Um, in fact, my, my acid test is if somebody heard you tell the story and they were actually there when that story happened the first time, would they be offended at the way you told it? And if the answer is no, then, then you told it good enough. It reminds me of a, of a Sandler story. He tells the story of uh, strip lining and how that's important in selling. And he talks about going bone fishing down in Florida Keys. Mm -hmm. And so I was probably in the business and a client probably for 10 or 15 years. And uh, my wife makes the mistake of saying, where do you want to go on vacation this summer, Mike? I said, we're going down to the Florida Keys and we're going to go bone fishing, just like Sandler did. So we did, and uh, my bone fishing story was, was a little different because we get out there in the flat, flat bottom boat, uh, like four or five miles off the coast of any island and over the sandbars. I looked down on the boat, and aside from the regular bait and the reels and the supplies, the guy's got 45. Okay. And I said to him. You know, I understand the way the bonefish work. You got to throw the, the, the chum out of the boat and cast out there. Uh, but what's the 45 for? And he says, well, uh, it's called the tide. The tide takes the chum into the channels between the islands, and sharks or groupers, usually sharks, mm -hmm. get, get the bait. And then some tourist like you pulls the shark up to the boat. And wants to take it home as a prize. And shoot my it. rule is, I shoot the shark a couple of times in the water before I bring him here in my yeah. boat. 
that's probably a, a, a good safety tip. No, right. no live sharks in the boat, right. <laughs> only and, dead sharks. In Sandler's version of the story, there were no tides mm. and, and no sharks. <laughs> so it, it, it was an interesting uh, experience to turn the Sandler's story into real life. Mm-hmm. Because there's obvious pieces that I didn't understand when he told the story because mm-hmm. I had that fish for bonefish. Right, right. But that was good. That was good. Uh, we're going to take a short commercial break here, and uh, we're going to be back in about uh, two minutes. And uh, we'll ask uh, Paul some more questions. When you hear about a typical sales training program, does it usually involve a one- or two-day seminar where some alleged guru passes down what he claims are the secrets to making sales? At Roth & Associates, I'm the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. We recognize that truisms and motivating speeches aren't enough to arm sales teams with the tools they need for success. Sales is a hard business. Typical sales training can only provide typical and disappointing results. At Roth & Associates, we use the Sandler methodology of continual reinforcement and ongoing training seminars along with individual coaching to ensure victory in the world of sales. We've been doing it here in Cincinnati for over 15 years. You won't fail because I won't let you. Roth & Associates, 513-646-6523. 513-646-6523. On the web at rothconsulting.net. Finding power in reinforcement. This message is short and to the point. In business, you don't get paid for what you know, you get paid for what you sell. Yet many salespeople leave their skills to chance. They often think, let me think it over. They write proposals that go nowhere. They lower their price to get the order. They wind up chasing prospects through the voicemail maze. It doesn't have to be that way. The best salespeople were not born great. They learned it. I'm Mike Roth of Roth & Associates. We're famous for our expensive, difficult sales training. We're not for everyone. We build the best sales prospectors and sales negotiators on the planet. Are you in sales? Are you ready to get deadly serious about your career that feeds your family? Are you ready to make a change? Call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523. Sandler's most experienced trainer in Cincinnati. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Paul Smith. Uh, Paul, before the break, we were talking about the structure of stories. Uh, Number one for me is how does a salesperson who's many times fact-based put emotion and surprise into their stories? Yeah, good question. So a couple of techniques there, and there are many, but uh, we got time for a couple of them here. So for emotion, uh, the simplest way is you just tell the audience, uh, you know, I, I was surprised or she was scared or he was horrified. I mean, you can just use the, the words to make sure that, that the audience knows that there was emotion going on. But that's kind of a cheap and easy way to do it. So in the Sandler translation, that would say uh, use pain words. Yeah. Scared yeah. to death, fear, uncertainty, right. doubt. Right. Yeah, and, and, that, and that works, but there's probably better ways. So like a better way would be to describe the, the physical manifestations of the emotion and let the audience figure it out for themselves. For, for example, you could say, well, she started crying. Okay, well, people don't cry for no reason. Obviously, there's something going on. Or he screamed at the top of his lungs or he, you know, um, you know, threw the guy out of the office in a, you know, angry tirade or whatever. So instead of just naming the emotion, describe what's going on, the sweaty palms because he was nervous, the tapping of the pencil because he, you know, so describe what's going on with the human being. You know, these are kind of tricks they would teach you in a creative writing class. But those kind of things communicate emotions much better because the audience can see it in their mind's eye as opposed to just being told the words. But, it, but at least use the words if you're not going to do anything else. Um, for surprise, there's a really easy one that, uh, that anybody can use, and it's really effective. And it's to basically just uh, save something, an important piece of information from the beginning of a story, and not give it to your audience until the end. So I, I give you an example. So there's a, a, a nine-year-old kid named James, <clears throat> and he's in the kitchen while his mom's having a cup of tea. 
And while she's sitting having tea at the table, he's standing at the stove watching the tea kettle boil. And he's just fascinated watching the steam come out of the top of the kettle. And, and he's he got a spoon. He holds it up and he watches the steam condense on the spoon and, and run down and drip into a cup. And he's just watching the cycle go over and over. And he's not, you know, he's a kid. He's fascinated with it. And eventually his mom just kind of barks at him. And she goes like, James, would you go do your homework or read a book or go outside and play or do something useful? Like you're just wasting your time in here. Well, fortunately, he, he was undaunted by his mother's admonition there because 20 years later, the then 29-year-old James Watt, in the year 1765, reinvented the steam engine, of course, ushering in the Industrial Revolution that we all benefit from today. Now, that story I first read in a book titled James Watt. It was a biography of James Watt written by Andrew Carnegie in 1905. Mm-hmm. So it was no surprise to me that that little nine-year-old kid, James, was James Watt. The whole book was about James Watt. But to you and your audience listening, that was a surprise. Why? Because I didn't tell you his last name. That's it. I, I, sh- I normally would have told you, here's a nine-year-old kid named James Watt. And you'd be thinking, oh, yeah, not the guy that invented the steam engine. All right, so I just withheld that vital piece of information. Leave the detail out. That would just pick one, one important one. Not leave all the details out, but mm-hmm. pick one vital one. And you, if you deliver it at the end, you've created a surprise ending. And that's, I think, where you really want your surprises is at the end of, of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's one way to do it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, can you give us a surprise in a sales story? Well, I mean, you heard one with Pig Island. I mean, the whole story is a surprise, right? Like, mm-hmm. that, but that's it, not really a that, – that, that was a story about you and your wife at an art fair and how you mm-hmm. happened to buy a particular picture uh, let's uh, take a different scenario, okay? Say there's a guy selling uh, high-end well, digital microphones. Well, um, yeah. Uh, well, instead of making one up, let me, I'll, I'll give you one from the book. Um, so there's a, a guy that was selling uh, IT security software, um, and uh, his customers are banks, credit card companies, and things like that that need you know security when people type in their PIN code and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so he often tells a story about uh, a, a week he went to Las Vegas as part of a, uh, a convention. And of course, what do we do when we're in Vegas? You know, at night, you know, you go enjoy some of the nightlife, right? And Dinner, you know, great show. Yeah, great show. Maybe you know, drop a few coins in the slots or whatever. Well, at some point, you run out of money, right? So he goes to a, an ATM machine to get some cash, and he pokes in his number, and it says transaction denied. You know, he does it again, transaction denied, goes to a different one, transaction denied, you know, and he's, he's frustrated, he can't get any, any money. And, but that wasn't what really upset him. What really upset him was that, he, and he didn't find this out till he got home, that night the bank called his wife at home in New Jersey and said, your husband is trying to get cash at an at a ATM machine in Las Vegas at 2 o'clock in the morning, would you approve the transaction? <laughs> of course, he's like livid finding this out. You know, and, and, and of course, he you know, didn't want to do business with that bank anymore and canceled the credit card and got a new bank. And just like and he thought, why on earth would they do that to me, embarrass me in front of my wife and, and make it difficult? Why could, they had my cell phone number. Why didn't they just call me or text me and say, hey, have you lost your phone? I mean, obviously, they thought it was a fraudulent transaction, but, you know, why didn't they call me or ask me a question or whatever? So he sells solutions for that that are less intrusive into the lives of the people who hold these credit cards. And so he tells that story as a way to show here's the kind of problem that your customers might have if you don't use the right kind of security protocol. Now, you probably didn't see it coming that they were going to call his wife in the middle of the night and embarrass him like that. Now, he, he could lead with a story with, oh, let me tell you about the time that the bank called my wife at home at 2 o'clock in the morning and then tell the story. But he prefers to tell it with the surprise at the end because it's more surprising. Okay? And that's a legitimate you know, problem story. That, that's one of the types of stories that salespeople should tell is what's the problem that your product or service is designed to fix? Uh, you need to establish that need in the mind of the buyer, and a story does a better job of it than here are the three reasons why you've got a problem that you need my product. So maybe I'm a little thick here. I, I, I got the emotion of embarrassment. Yeah, you got that too. What was the surprise? The, the fact that they called his wife. Like, that wasn't an obvious thing that was going to happen. You know, he thought he was just going to go back to his hotel room with no money and be upset about it. Mm-hmm. But he gets sure. home the next day in New Jersey and finds out his wife's livid with him because they called her in the middle of the night, woke her up. If it's 2 a.m. and, you know, 
Vegas, it's four or five a.m. in New Jersey, right? You know, so yeah, so, so something like that that makes the story much more. You're much more likely to remember that story since the wife got woke, woken up at four or five o'clock in the morning and she's mad at her husband, and you know that makes it a more interesting story. Mm-hmm. It also makes it more uh, more of a problem, more of a need, more of a yeah a, a solution uh, that he has right. Which doesn't require the bank to pick up the phone in the middle of the night and call. Right. Right. Okay. That's good. Uh, in, in in creating this book on storytelling, what what was the biggest surprise that you had? Oh, yeah. You know, it may have been what I, I kind of mentioned at the beginning. I was surprised that I would learn so much from professional procurement people. You know, I, I, I kind of attacked that as an afterthought, um, and then I found myself learning so much from these professional buyers. And my father's one of them. My, my dad spent 40-some-odd years as a professional buyer this far away from salespeople calling on him all day long. And people like that just have a wealth of knowledge. In fact, I, the last recommendation I make in the book is for salespeople you know, the, the best source of wisdom you're going to find for how to become a better salesperson is probably closer than you think. And it's the, the purchasing department in your own company. <laughs> you should probably go hang out with them. Take them to lunch. Ask them about the best sales call that anybody ever made on them and the worst one and the next to worst one and the next to best one. And, you know, and, what, and find out from them what is it that – why is it that you decide to buy from some people and not others? You know, I mean, who better to learn that kind of a thing from? And most people don't take advantage of that because it just doesn't occur to them. It yeah, didn't okay. occur to me. In round numbers, how many uh, purchasing people did you uh, interview for the book? Uh, it's probably at least one purchasing person from maybe half the companies I interviewed, so 25 different of, of these major companies. And I wasn't interviewing a lot of people at each company. I was interviewing a lot of companies, and so there's a there's a difference. You know, if you're if you're trying to find out who's going to win the presidential election or how much money people make on average, you can send out surveys to tens of thousands of people. But if you're trying to learn about storytelling and the use of storytelling, you don't want to use surveys. You want to have a one-on-one conversation with somebody for two hours and then go have another one-on-one conversation with one person for two hours and ask them about all their stories. And so it's a very different kind of research than survey research. So you're not looking for thousands of people. You're looking for 100 people or 50 people that can really uh, spend some time, quality time with you, understanding how they tell stories. Did you record most of these stories? Oh, yeah. All of them. Yeah, because I can't remember. And you can't type. I can't type as fast as people talk. And so, yeah, I, I, I record them and go back and listen to them over and over. And and then I, and I end up calling them back with a few questions or whatever. But, yeah, that's kind of the way you have to do it. Mm-hmm. Is there one story uh, that was told to you by a purchasing agent that stands out? Uh, well, there's one story about some poor guy named Frank. Uh, which wasn't his real name, they uh, told me, <laughs> just to save the guy from embarrassment. But he was a sales guy. That uh, uh, he, His main problem was he didn't tell stories, and when he not real stories, and when he did talk about anything other than his features and benefits, mm-hmm. it was about himself. I mean, he was just the most arrogant, conceited guy that these buyers had ever uh, come in contact with. And they all knew about him. They knew him by name. They knew when he was coming. They'd roll their eyes when he walked in the door. Um, you know, and, and he didn't last long uh, for obvious reasons at every company that he went to. And it was because anything he talked about, if it wasn't a product, it was about himself. And he never shared any stories. It was always features and benefits. And uh, you don't want to be that guy. Um, uh, and then that's why a lot of your stories need to be not just about you. Uh, they need to be about other people because otherwise stories. yeah yeah because otherwise you come across as that arrogant self-centered you know sob that nobody wants to do business with you know you mm-hmm. so you need a broader repertoire of stories and just things that happen to me and if they and and all the stories about you shouldn't all be where you're the hero right some of them should be where you're the villain like you know here the let me tell you about the three biggest mistakes i ever made you know three different stories right here mm-hmm. People want to hear that kind of thing because then, okay, if that's the worst mistake you've ever made, okay, we're good, right? And and the good thing about that is after you made that mistake, you went and told your uh, your buyer, hey, I'm, I messed up. I made these mistakes, but here's what I'm going to do to fix it. That's what they want. They want to hear some honesty because nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. They, but they want to hear about – in fact, that's one of the types of questions buyers told me. They want to hear from salespeople. I want to hear you tell me about when you made a mistake and how you fixed it. 
I want to hear about a story about when you told somebody, I'm not the best solution for you this time. Right? I don't want a salesperson that tells me any need you've got, I can solve it. I am I'm your solution for everything. So I don't believe people like that. You know, I want you to tell me here, there's one, it's kind of the Macy's and Gimbel's thing from that, what's that movie, Miracle on 34th Street or whatever. You know, it's not like you should be sending all your clients to somebody else, but every once in a while, you ought to be able to say, you know what, I don't have the best product in that category, um, but uh, probably the other 90% of your needs, I'm going to be your guy. Now that they want to hear that, it makes you an honest, real person. That's a good story. Yeah. Good, Paul. I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, again, Paul's book will be out in end of August, early September. Good. Sell with a story. Sell with a story. Look for it on Amazon, and probably find it in your local uh, Barnes and Noble. Hope so. Again, Paul, thanks for being on the show. And uh, Scott, why don't you take it away? Thanks for, Thanks for listening. This program this is program the property of Sandler Training, training by, by Roth Associates, Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400.